0: Hi everyone, Andy Higgins here. In today's episode, Jimmy Atkinson fills in for me as guest host. His conversation with Gillian Murish is all about short duration private credit. I think you're really gonna love all the insights. Enjoy the interview. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagans. Welcome to the show. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Today, we're talking short maturity, private credit, and joining me from Manhattan Beach, California is Jillian Murish, CEO of Peer Asset Management. Jillian, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Absolutely, Jillian. So, big zoom out question to start us out here at a high level. Jillian, what's so great about private credit? What can you tell us about it?
1: That is a great question. I love answering this. Um, so I think, you know, I, I got interested in private credit probably, I guess, 10 years ago. And there were a number of reasons why from an investment standpoint, uh, it was most attractive to me. So I don't have a high risk tolerance. Um, you know, I'm not, I, I was never going to be one for equities investing, the stock market. I don't have the stomach for it. Uh, and so that led me to private credit. And so first of all, you know, it is not correlated to the market; it has low correlation. And so you know, you're not riding the turbulence of the markets. You know, generally, uh, you know, again, it doesn't ride the waves of the stock market. Um, you're not uh, feeling daily hits to valuation or changes. Um, so there's there's just uh, you know a bit of insulation when there's market turbulence or market concerns. Uh, second, I love it. I alluded to this already, but it has low volatility. So, you know, you're investing in private credit, the day-to-day changes in value are very minimal. You're not having to deal with those ups and downs. Again, not for me. I can't stomach it. Uh, And then lastly, a lot of private credit uh, generally revolves around highly collateralized deals. So again, instead of doing direct middle market lending, um, you know, to companies, which is a, a, a decent chunk of private credit, there are sleeves in private credit that is what I focus on. Um, where you can be collateralized by assets that provide value behind a loan. And so, again, it's that it goes back to my low risk tolerance where, um, you know, I, I just don't have the stomach for equity investing. And if you can be making loans or lending where there's collateral behind it, that provides a, a additional assurances um, and, and helps protect that downside. So um, the, I guess that's high level why why private credit uh, got me interested in the first place and has uh, has has maintained my focus for the last almost decade.
0: Excellent. I want to talk more about private credit with you. We'll talk about what it is also and how it differs from some other asset classes and in particular in particular the sleeves that you are focusing on in a few minutes here but first I want to back up and get uh, some more information on you Jillian for our audience of high net worth investors, family offices and advisors who may be unfamiliar with you? Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Who is Jillian Murish and what is peer asset management? If you could just walk us through your story.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, you know, if any if anyone's on video, you can see I have the Manhattan Beach pier behind me in a picture. We're based in Los Angeles, uh, in a town called Manhattan Beach, just south of the LAX airport. Uh, I founded the firm in 2017 with my business partner Connor New, and we set out to create. Um, we set out to fill this gap in the private credit space uh, that was serving earlier stage specialty finance lenders. And my background before starting this firm was actually running the capital markets practice at a specialty finance loan originator. And so I was sitting in the operator seat, running a lender, making loans against real estate, selling those those loans off to the capital markets uh, ecosystem on, on Wall Street, um, working with credit facility providers to my lender to fund my loan product, and all while sitting in that seat, I saw that there were gaps that these larger institutional funds just weren't filling. And so, you know, we set out to launch Peer to say, "Hey, let's pro- let's provide two value propositions to the specialty finance private credit ecosystem." And so, really, what those two two value propositions are is one, we'll provide liquidity to sellers of these assets. Uh, when there really aren't other buyers around, and we'll transact fast, consistently, and we'll close when we say we will. So that first investment strategy that we set out to do uh, is where we go and buy portfolios of loans in the secondary market from stressed sellers. So initially, when when we launched the firm in twenty seventeen, we were often facing across from other fund managers. So you know maybe it's a fund in New York that has a portfolio of small business equipment loans. They've been holding these five-year loans for maybe three or four years. Um, you know, perhaps uh, you know the business is winding down. They need to shut the fund down, and they need cash fast. They would come to our firm. We would buy that portfolio at a discount par and get that transaction done quickly. Um, and ultimately, what we get is a shorter duration asset. So instead of these five-year loans, we're buying them when there's only one year left on them. So we get this one-year. Uh, type term asset. Um, and we get to boost the yield by buying it at a discount to par. So we take these single digit assets and generate these kind of mid-double mid digit yields um, by buying the asset at a discount. So that was our first offering uh, to the specialty finance ecosystem was, hey, we'll be that secondary market consistent bid where there really isn't any. And the key to, key to our strategy was that we were going to stay in smaller deal sizes that big firms uh, like the largest asset managers in the the US just aren't interested in because of the dollar size. So we typically transact under 25 million in size and we don't run into others that compete for us or compete for those deals against us, uh, which again is fantastic for terms uh, and driving terms and pricing. And all those good things. So that was value proposition one with our. Firm. So
0: Jillian, let me let me interrupt you there for a second before you get to value proposition two, because I know you want to talk about value proposition two in a moment here. Uh, but I had a question about value proposition one. You say that you're purchasing the portfolio of loans at a discount to par. What what typically does that discount look like, and why does the does the holder of that debt typically want to sell to you at at a discount?
1: Fantastic. So. This actually gives me the opportunity to back up and share specifically what we buy so that it can be a bit more tangible for the listeners. So because depending on what the portfolio is, it heavily affects the discount that we're buying it at. So we invest across consumer, small business, and real estate debt. Right now, we've actually taken a pause on the real estate debt asset class as a whole. Uh, We've been out of the space for about a year and a half which we could talk about after this. Um, so we're primarily investing in consumer and small business debt today. Um, and depending on what type of debt, uh, you know, underlies the portfolio, the discount is greater or smaller. Um, so for example, within, uh, within consumer debt, we'll do elective medical loans. So typically, you know, or previously we had a transaction with a counterpart who did um, plastic surgery lending. And these, the borrowers against that plastic surgery loan generally had very high income, FICO's above 750, almost $200,000 incomes, and these were prime borrowers. Um, if we were buying a portfolio of that paper, the discount would maybe be in the 90s, you know, would, or we would be buying at 90 cents on the dollar because the credit quality is very high. Um, we've also looked at uh, portfolios of subprime auto loans, and you know, that paper, maybe you're buying at 40 cents on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar if the credit quality of the underlying borrower uh, is much lower. Uh, you know, again, we also invest in assets that are just really uncorrelated to the stock market. So something like music royalties lending we've done. Um, and again, you, know, that wouldn't warrant such a discount because streaming revenue isn't as impacted. Uh, by changes to the general macroeconomic environment as say auto lending. So it's just highly dependent, but I would say a tight or a a wide range would be anywhere from 50 cents to 90 cents would be the wide broad range. And I'd say most typically we're somewhere in the 80 cent bid.
0: Good. And and then why, the second part of my question was, Hmm. why are the sellers of these portfolios willing to sell them at such a big discount to par?
1: Mm -hmm. So just a general answer is that the seller is under some kind of stress. Uh, But to bring that to life with specific examples, um, I like to actually talk about the evolution of our business over time. Uh, When we started the firm in 2017, we were often facing other fund managers. And a lot of these fund managers uh, had started their business in, say, 2014, 2015, trying to get a fund off the ground to be investing in private credit. That was kind of the beginning of, um, of this rush of capital into specialty finance, private credit. It was the very beginning. And a lot of these funds never got to scale. They maybe only raised $25 million in capital or $15 million in capital. And at that size firm, it's just not sustainable to run the operating business. And so by 2017, a lot of these firms were winding down, closing the business and selling off their remaining loan portfolios. Um, so just to give that a category, it's business shutdown. Would be a category of why someone's selling. Um, other reasons, uh, you know, we've we've faced other seller types. So it predominantly started off facing other fund managers. And then over time, we've seen a whole host of sellers. So everyone from a bank, you know, we faced a bank a few years back who was heading into a regulatory exam and they had told their regulators, hey, we have a certain allocation target between consumer and small business. They were over allocated to one of the segments, so they offloaded a portfolio to us to uh, To eliminate uh, regulatory risk, and so that's a stressor on them is this potential regulatory risk. They're willing to take a loss of capital to be able to be stay in business, not get a get a black mark from the regulators. Um, other instances, you know, as a family office, the patriarch passed away. Uh, the heirs did not want to manage illiquid assets. They preferred to receive cash and then invest it in things that they understood or things that you know they had more interest in. And so we bought a portfolio of residential mortgages uh, from a family office who was liquidating everything. Um, you know, and, and most recently, which you know, touches on our current environment, we've actually been buying portfolios of loans from the lenders themselves. So you know, if you think of this whole specialty finance ecosystem, there's a subset of lenders that are tech-enabled fintech firms. And this is a subset we work with. And You know, these firms typically rely on accessing the equity markets through VC investors, and they rely on that to scale their businesses. And as a lot of us know, in 22, the venture capital community just shut down and said no more lending until until we understand what's happening in in the macroeconomic environment better. And so a lot of these FinTech businesses weren't able to raise their next series of equity funding, which meant that they had to shut down their operating business. And part of shutting down a FinTech company that has a lending component is selling a book of loans off and liquidating that asset. And so, you know, imagine there's a software as a service business that does inventory management with software. They eventually layered on a lending program where they would lend to their small business clients against that inventory they were you know, managing with software. Great, great business model. And they couldn't raise their Series B to continue funding the tech of the business so they had to shut it down, and they had a bank credit facility holding all of those um, all of those inventory loans. They needed to sell off that portfolio. So you know that's something we would look at uh, and buy today.
0: And so oftentimes, a lot more of that. Oftentimes, it it sounds like the underlying assets themselves, the loans, are not stressed, but rather just the the holders of the debt. Their situation changes, or they're stressed for whatever reason.
1: One hundred percent. So a line that I often say to explain our strategy we are buying performing assets from distressed sellers. We are not buying distressed assets. So you are, you articulated it perfectly, which again, being a buyer of a performing asset uh, from a stressed seller, you're getting stressed pricing for a performing asset, which I think is just the most ideal scenario.
0: Got it. Uh, what about value proposition number two? Cause I cut you off a few minutes ago. Maybe you wanna talk about value proposition number two.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, The second thing we do uh, over here at Peer is instead of buying these loans outright and owning them, we actually lend against portfolios of loans. And the way we do it is in the form of a senior secured credit facility to a lender. So imagine there's a small business equipment lender that makes loans against tractors, trailers, uh, dentist, dental x-ray equipment, you you name it, there's a lot of small business equipment. Um, We would go and provide a credit facility to the lender to go make those loans. So we lend to lenders is something is a way to think about it. And we're collateralized by a portfolio of loans. So we're never lending to a lender for their operating business to pay employees or you know pay uh, their tech expenses. We're simply lending against that portfolio of loans, um, and they use our capital to make new loans. Um, so you know strategy one, we purchase the loans. Strategy two, we lend against them. And uh, it's interesting because the strategies are really complementary to each other and uh, really have a purpose for the specialty finance ecosystem during different times uh, in the cycle. So, you know, right now we're buying a lot of portfolios off of these fintech company balance sheets that didn't scale, had issues with raising equity capital. Um, But then, you know, that was a year and a half ago when the venture markets closed. And now venture markets are opening back up again for new businesses that don't have the black marks of uh, certain dynamics that happened during COVID. And so they're funding new businesses who you know have great value propositions, unique borrower acquisition channels, and they need a credit facility to help scale that loan growth. Uh, and so we're now funding a lot of those new growing businesses that have you know a more stable balance sheet and didn't didn't get caught in the COVID era um, of closed equity markets. So it's um. It's an interesting, good uh, like, uh, strategies that, that are, you know, one, one kind of helps hard, sad stories and the other helps happy stories. So we're, we're balanced between the two.
0: Good. One thing you mentioned a few minutes ago, Jillian, is that uh, you're no longer dipping your toe into the real estate um, credit markets. Why is that? Why are you shifting away from real estate?
1: So, my background was actually running uh, capital markets at a real estate lender. So, it's actually, you know, before starting this firm, it was what I knew best. And um, we, and I think it was, yes, Jan, Feb, March of 22, uh, the writing was on the wall that interest rates only had one way to go. You know, interest rates were still almost zero. And heading into that spring period of 22, we knew, you know, rapid rising rates was coming. And for a lot of the real estate lending we do, we were lending uh, to lenders that lent to fix and flip borrowers. So a fix and flip borrower is someone who acquires a house, renovates it, and then sells it in a pretty quick period, you know, six months, 12 months, and they make a profit on it. Um, a lot of our other uh, real estate holdings were with, uh, with real estate investors who had a strategy to buy a home, renovate it, and put a renter in it. And both of those strategies are pretty terrible in rising interest rate environments, as you can imagine interest rates go up, and you bought a house for a certain dollar amount, interest rates rise, and you're selling it in six months. And with higher interest rates, the value should go down. Um, or you're putting a renter in it, and your, your interest rates are increasing at that point. And so you're not cash flowing the same amount that you had pro formaed when you bought it, if interest rates quadruple or quintuple, which is what happened. Um, And so we were really, really fortunate to have unwound any position in in the real estate space by about June of 22. And, you know, we have very minimal, if no exposure today uh, to real estate debt. I think in the coming year or two, there could be opportunity. uh, But today, we're, you know, hands are out of that and um, just watching and waiting to see where things go.
0: Yeah. um, Kind of reminds me of one other thing you said earlier at the beginning of our conversation, Jillian, is that you like private credit because it's, not correlated with the equities market, but there is some exposure to, or there's there's a relationship between uh, rising interest rates or interest rate volatility and private credit markets. Do you have any concerns about the current um, macroeconomic environment that we find ourselves in with respect to, we just had about 18 months of rapidly increasing interest rates, and now we're in a period of time as we sit here, we're recording this, uh, toward the end of August of 2023, where we're not sure what the Fed might do next with interest rates. They might pause them, maybe they'll lower them a little bit, but they haven't hit their inflation target yet. So I'm of the opinion that they we might have a few more rate hikes still to come. Does that concern you at all? Any concerns about interest rate volatility?
1: So, Fortunately for my business, uh, interest rate volatility and uncertainty can bring um, interesting opportunity. So what that means is, you know, number one, we price all of our credit facilities over SOFR, so they float over the SOFR base rate changing. So, you know, we experience in our deals, you know, better economics as interest rates rise because they're, you know, the borrowers are paying a higher coupon. Um, we protect against the downside on that by instituting what's called a, a base rate SOFR floor. So, if base rates go down, our base rate can't go below a certain percentage point. So, we know that we're guaranteed a certain um, or not guaranteed, but we we have a certain pricing, um, you know, pricing, uh, you know, structure baked in that is a bit more agile with interest rate changes. Um, and then second, uh, with interest rates changing, like you said, this caused a lot of uh, the rapid rise in interest rates caused a lot of turmoil for other financial institutions. You know, most namably, Silicon Valley Bank, and you know that that was caused because of longer dated maturities. And so if you're investing in credit instruments that have long data maturities with lower interest rates then interest rates rise, those instruments have very little value. And so at our firm, one of the most important things to our strategy, which I think you touched on at the beginning, is that we focus on all short duration opportunities. We are not going out in duration. We're staying very short, which for us is sub 12 months. And so, you know, when we're investing, you know, at our firm, we're looking at a very short period of time and, you know, we invest in deals each month, probably one to two, sometimes three deals a month, which means our portfolio, you know, is laddered and has different maturities coming off at different times. Uh, And so I think the best hedge against interest rates changing is simply being short duration so that you can change your book and invest in this new interest rate environment uh, with free cash at any given time. So, you know, for us, we had been investing, uh, you know, at old kind of zero interest, zero percent base rate prices all through twenty one and twenty and heading into twenty two and twenty three. You know, it was great that we were able to really turn the book over into this higher interest rate environment and underwrite deals at this new pricing. Um, And so, you know, for us, we were not concerned because. You we, know we think that we've managed it through duration and through floating rates. Um, but second, any sort of stress or volatility on interest rates um, will create stress for other participants in our ecosystem, which when stress is created, there's an opportunity for a buy for us. Uh, so you know, it, it is interesting. The writing I don't think is so clear on the wall, like you're saying, it's it was very obvious in 20, mid-22 where interest rates were going you know, today it's, you know, few hikes are, are probably to come. Do interest rates stay there for a while? Do they start ticking back down? Uh, I'm not one to say I'm not a macro economist. And if people who spend all their time on the macro economy get it wrong, I certainly am not trying to step in and, and get it right. And the beauty is I, I think I don't have to because of our duration and floating rates. So um, that's my my cop out on, on trying to play macro economist.
0: <laughs> no, I think that's a huge benefit to your strategy, though, Jillian, is that Your product is a lot less interest rate sensitive because it's short duration. Um, It's also interesting. I think you're also benefiting at this current moment in time from an inverted yield curve as well. So, not only are you less sensitive to interest rate volatility, interest rate hikes in particular, but uh, those shorter duration credit um, assets, those shorter duration bonds, loans, debt should be yielding a little bit higher than longer duration at this current moment in time as well, which is a little bit of an oddity. Uh, but it does happen from time to time. Yeah, coming out of what did we have about thirteen years of zero interest rates? We we find ourselves in in new times uh, over the last eighteen months here. Wild. Um, I want to talk with you about peer asset management and just the business itself. What is it like running your firm and and you know the type of firm that that you are running? How long have you been going for?
1: So we we launched the firm in twenty seventeen. I co-founded it with my partner Connor New, so we've been around six and a half years, going on seven. And you know, it—it was—it's been a—it seems like the longest fast journey ever. I—I I look back on anything I was doing before Peer, and it seems like forever ago. But then, when I think that we've been doing this specific business for six years, I can't believe it's gone by this fast. It's—it's it's wild. Um, and you know, and building an asset manager is is unique to building an operating business. There's some similarities and some differences. Um so previously to this, I mentioned I was actually in it was a fintech. It was a tech enabled lender. So we called it a Fintech firm. You know we were raising venture capital, using credit facilities to fund loans in a rapidly growing uh, business environment. And so, you know i I've been an operator. That's my background. I you know, started my first company in college. and, uh, you know, sold it before I graduated, then went into typical traditional finance, then popped back out to FinTech, um, and now run more of a traditional finance finance firm. Um, and that was my, uh, you know, that was part of the partnership that I brought to the table with Connor was, you know, running this operating business. And my business partner, Connor, has always been an investor. He's been investing for 20 years. Uh, he's our chief investment officer. And we, you know, and he, he, you know, we're a small team, so he obviously wears other hats. Um, and I do. I spend about forty percent of my time investing. Uh, he spends the majority of his time investing, and then you know, spends a smaller amount of his time running the business with me. Um, but that was, you know, my my uh, part of my value to this partnership is running the operating business. And six years in, we are a dramatically different firm than we were in the first few years of, of starting. Um, you know, we we really bootstrap the business. Uh, we did not take any seed capital from the big cedar firms to launch our fund. Um, we didn't want to because we wanted to keep the economics uh, between the two of us, grow slower, make this a lifelong business. Uh, and so we did that, And I'm really proud of it. But it meant that we grew slower, grew slower. and uh, we you know we had smaller infrastructure to start off when we launched the firm because we didn't have that immediate seed capital. And so it's been a journey over six years of iterating the operating company. Uh, sophistic- adding more sophistication to the internal infrastructure and our team year after year uh, to really get to this steady state as a mature investment manager. Where you know today we actually you know we, the last eighteen months we're focused on a complete overhaul of our infrastructure, internal systems and processes. And as of you know the end of Q three, we're we're approaching here quite quickly. We'll actually have a full implementation of that of those integrated systems. So everything from our uh, our loan management system to our internal accounting system, uh, as well as our CRM, they all talk to each other uh, and create value uh, and efficiency for our employees. Uh, this internal infrastructure is what we think we can rely on through our full maturity and, and full scale uh, over the coming you know few years. So uh, it's it's a, a unique business to run for sure. Um, it takes a lot less people than a tech company, in my experience. So. You know, we're a team of 11 and we all, you know, we're here in LA. Um, you know, we don't um we don't ever intend to be a 50 person business uh, because fortunately you don't have to scale headcount as you scale um, you know, clients in AUM. So it's it's a good business because of that. But um it um it it had some challenges along the way. Let's say, let's say that. Just I think every entrepreneur's journey has some ups and downs. And uh, you know, fortunately we we're kind of seeming, seeming as though we're through the woods which is a good feeling.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, it seems like you're well on your way now. We're bouncing around a little bit in this interview. I want to go back to private credit right now after uh, taking that foray into your your operating business firm and what it's like running an asset manager, back to private credit now. How should investors consider private credit uh, compared with other asset classes? Where does it sit on the risk return spectrum?
1: Yeah, so oh, it's it's interesting. We you know we work with a lot of wealth managers, and when they look at their clients' portfolio, you know typically there used to be this I you know eighty twenty or you know whatever allocation they were giving between stocks and bonds. You know for most clients it was an eighty twenty split, and since the rise of alts, many of these managers have started looking at portfolios and saying, hey, we need to carve out a piece of this book to alts. So what we're seeing is a lot of portfolio managers of of, wealthy uh, individual capital, they're saying, we have an alts bucket, a bonds bucket, and an equities bucket. And there's a whole other uh, class of wealth managers that say, uh, we have an equities bucket, an alts bucket, and then we've carved off a large part of the bond bucket to private credit. Hmm. So we've seen it done both ways. It either sits in the alts bucket or it sits in the bond bucket. Uh, The way I think about it personally, I would probably strip out a part of the bond bucket and create a private credit sleeve there is is how I would think about it. And I give that overall view because people assign different risk profiles to each of those buckets. And so I would put it in the bond bucket, you know, maybe, um, you know, it has very different dynamics than current bond offerings, uh, but perhaps you're pulling out duration dated bonds for the duration of whatever private credit strategy you're putting in your portfolio. So that, that's how I would think about it. Um, there also, I wish I could, could show a slide today, but there's a, a great graph out there that puts the S&P on a curve for volatility and yield. And then it places corporate bonds, municipal bonds, and then private credit. And really what you see is the private credit dot on that graph is very close to zero duration. So like 12 months duration, and it's much higher on the yield curve. You know, you're talking high single digits, pushing into mid double digits. For private credit. Um, and that's kind of a hard uh duration and yield to typically find in either you know the SP or uh other other debt products like corporate yields or um or uh you know US Treasuries.
0: And then the particular sleeve of private credit that you are focused on, how does that differ from other sleeves or how does it differ from uh, other, you know, public credit. Like, if uh, like e- e, I think there are ETFs available that you know wealth managers can access. Uh, you know, how does your investment strategy differ from from those other strategies within that overall bond bucket, and then also within the the smaller private credit bucket?
1: Great question. So, you know, within private credit, I would say the largest uh, bucket is still direct middle market lending to corporations. So think about a $1 billion credit fund that writes, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 credit facilities a year that are, are 50 to 100 million to big corporations that use that capital to pay for their working capital needs. So they pay for their employees, they pay for, you know, whatever inventory they're buying, et cetera. So I think that's a large, I, I don't quote me, I think that is the largest bucket within private credit. There are a lot of different definitions. Um, and that's very unique compared to our corner of private credit, which we call specialty finance. So private credit, direct middle market lending, you know, oftentimes it can be collateralized by a business's real estate or equipment. Uh, but oftentimes there's an uncollateralized component when you're doing direct middle market lending to a company. Um, in specialty finance, you're generally financing financial assets. So when I say a financial asset, that's a loan. So if you're providing a credit facility like us to a lender that makes equipment loans, we're collateralized by a portfolio of loans. So you have a piece of collateral sitting there, and you're not just dependent on the success of an operating business, you know, scaling, serving their customers, and making profit. It's really, hey, how is the performance of these underlying assets doing? So we sit in specialty finance. And within specialty finance, we sit in the short-duration bucket where we're in opportunities. Firm. So we, what we say is, we do special opportunities, and that's a unique sleeve within specialty finance, uh, where we're not doing. um, You know, there are there are certain big, big funds out there that again are serving the larger lenders, uh, doing these hundred million dollar credit facilities. We're in the opportunity space where we step in and do a twenty five million dollar facility for an earlier stage lender, or we buy that ten million dollar portfolio off the balance sheet. Of a bank or a family office. And so, you know, I would say our corner is big bucket private credit, smaller sleeve specialty finance. Within that, we're in the short duration sleeve. And within that, we're an opportunistic fund.
0: Got it. I know where you sit now. That's perfect. (laughs) Uh, We're kind of winding down our our time here today, Jillian. A couple more questions I have for you. I kind of wanted you to. Gaze into your crystal ball a little bit, so <laughs> these might be challenging questions, uh, but do your best with them if you could. Um, is Do you see that there might be an increase in stressed sellers coming down the pike at some point in the near to, to midterm future here given uncertain macroeconomic conditions, given that interest rate volatility and the potential for more interest rate hikes like we discussed before?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, we think there's a great period here in our corner of this private credit world uh, to capture a lot of stress sellers. And I think it's, you know, the next six to 18 to 24 months, there's still going to be an opportunity here. And, you know, as I alluded, or as I talked about the venture capital uh, ecosystem shut down at the equity markets in, in 2022. And a lot of these businesses at that time still had 18 or 24 months of operating capital runway. So any of those who had that type of runway made it through to today or they're going to make it another six months. Um, but there were a lot of challenges through those periods that caused uh, you know black marks on their track record, if you will, that's going to make it very hard for them to access equity capital today. You know they're not the pretty new businesses that are starting that don't have any of that history of Performance issues or origination slowdown when stimulus happened; those sort of things um, caused track record blunders for these earlier specialty finance companies that were especially tech enabled. Uh, and so, a lot of those have flamed out, had to sell their portfolios, and gone out of business. But there's a whole host of others who had 18 months of runway that are still going and are going to burn out in six months or 12 months. And so, we're watching that closely and uh, you know planning accordingly and being ready to be there as that liquidity provider and that bid during that time of stress. So we, you know, again, even if there's not new market turmoil, we think there's still turmoil for this subset of specialty finance lenders who made it through COVID, but didn't have the wherewithal to make it much further after.
0: Very good, good position for you to be in. uh, If that does come to fruition. What about any other trends? Are there any other trends in private credit more broadly that you're keeping an eye on that you think investors should keep an eye on?
1: Yes, so this trend started, I would say about two years ago and it's hyper niche specialty finance originators that are serving a very narrow band of credit borrower. So historically this space blossomed in 2010, 2012, 2014, where there were these big behemoth lenders, non-bank lenders going out and making really broad-based loans to people. Hey, we're a consumer lender and we'll make any consumer a $10,000 loan if they have a certain FICO score. Well, performance was really challenging to predict because these borrowers were coming from all walks of life, were using the money for different purposes. Um, and the repayment on it was just, you were. it was a big guessing game. And um, there was a lot of volatility in performance. And so what's happened over the last few years is these uh, you know, these newer lenders have popped up to serve a very tiny uh, sliver of a borrower segment. And so they understand everything about that person, the repayment mechanics or everything about that business or that asset they're lending against. So one example is that we work with a lender that lends to students going to software coding boot camps. So these are a 12-month software coding program where on the other side, you're you know, a certified software programmer and you can get a job at Apple or you know, any of these big companies. And that's all this lender lends to. They can look at how many job openings are there for all of these, uh, you know, for a software coder? What's the pay for it? Uh, have there been any layoffs? Like all of those dynamics is the only thing they have to be looking at to understand repayment of their borrower. And so I think that trend is only going to continue. Performance is much more predictable. You have a much tighter borrower acquisition channel. So cost to acquire your borrower is a lot lower if you're going narrow and very deep instead of this prey and spray method. And so the, the unit economics for the lender are much better doing this. Um, they're not going to be as big of businesses, but they're going, going to be more profitable uh, and have a better credit profile that will attract the capital markets and support that growth. Uh, so I think that trend is only going to continue. We remain very interested in niche lenders. Uh, you know, you're seeing uh, firms pop up that all they do is factor school district receivables or, you know, vocational school students um, or just dental x-ray machines. Like these the, these businesses exist uh, just serving that narrow of a band, which sounds surprising, uh, but I, I think are quite compelling businesses that have really unique lending opportunities that we're excited to get involved in.
0: It is hyper niche. (laughs) You're right about that. Uh, This has been great, Jillian. I've learned a lot today. Uh, I'm going to let you go in a minute here. But before I do let you go, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and peer asset management?
1: Absolutely. So uh, we'd love you to come find me on uh, Twitter, now X. Uh, My handle is at Jillian Murish. Uh, You can also follow Connor, my business partner. He's at Connor, C-O-N-O-R-N-E-U. He puts out great content uh, about our deals and how we think about investing as well. Uh, So come find us on Twitter. Uh, We'd love to say hi. And um, it was so great to be on the show. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. And we'll be sure to link to uh, those X handles on the show notes for today's episode. You can just tap or click on the link in the description wherever you're watching or listening to this. And uh, that'll take you to the show notes for today's episode. Jillian, thanks for joining us. And for all of our listeners and viewers out there, please be sure to subscribe to Wealth Channel on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Jillian, thanks again. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks. Have a great day. That's it for today's
0: show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.